you know, things I look for are, you know, is there goal-directed behavior? Did this person plan to go to a liquor store with five friends and rob it? And that's, you know, goal-directed behavior. That's not what you expect to see with someone with psychosis or mania. They tend to be more impulsive and just poorly thought out behaviors. So, right. you know, you kind of have to go through the police report and also the type of crime and what they did and, and kind of figure out, you know, is this, does this fall within the realm of what someone with a severe mental illness would do? Or maybe was this more coordinated and planned as part of someone that's more criminally sophisticated? Welcome to the Forensic Psychologist Podcast, a place where we discuss the niche practice area of forensic psychology. The show episodes will take you on a trek through the intersections of law, human behavior, and even some true crime. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Vienna, Forensic Psychologist and Clinical Director at Vienna Psychological Group. And although I'm a licensed psychologist, please note that information discussed and presented on this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose or treat any condition, nor is it a substitute for medical, psychiatric, or legal advice. Also, these episodes are not a substitute for clinical supervision. Please continue to rely on your supervisor's guidance and seek appropriate consultation. Lastly, any cases discussed on this show are always de-identified. Welcome back, Dr. Caribbean. Thanks for being here again. Thanks for having me back. If you guys are interested in knowing a little bit more about Dr. Gribian's background, please check out his prior episodes. He was episode three, I believe, on season one. So you can get more in-depth details back there. But do you mind updating us on any new things you got going on in your practice, any new specialty areas or new positions? Sure. I think from the last time that we spoke, I changed my main job. So now I work for still the state of California, but I'm in the Offenders with Mental Health Disabilities Unit or OMHD. So we do OMHD evaluations for the Southern region of of California for inmates that are within CDCR that are about to parole, which is actually what we're going to talk about today. As far as my private practice goes, still doing mostly the same stuff. A lot of forensic and civil work. I'm on the adult panel now for LA County for their expert witness panel. I just got on that maybe a month or two ago. So a lot of the same stuff, just more work. How busy are you on that panel? It's very, very busy, actually. There's a lot of work for that. Definitely. So if you're interested, check out the LA County Court website. I will link that here because they are always looking to interview new experts to get on that panel. But let's get into our episode. Before we get into the actual topic we're going to talk about, I did get listener questions because I do announce who I'm going to have on the show, on social medias, and people that follow the podcast in general. So a couple questions came in. They all kind of were similar, but they wanted to ask you, was it hard to get into forensic psychology work? So this is coming from a few undergrad students that are looking to get into grad school. But that is a common question I get. So can you just like a couple minutes on what it was like, or is it difficult to get into this line of work? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as a new student, you obviously don't have any experience. I mean, I didn't have any experience starting off. So in the beginning, it is challenging to get into it. But at the same time, no one really expects you to know anything. So as part of your training, when you start applying to practicum sites and then internship, in the beginning, it's not as difficult to get into because no training director expects you as a first-year practicum student to know these things. So I think if you start off early on in your training and start going for these forensic sites, assuming that you're a good fit and you know what you want to do, I don't think it's that difficult to start off as a student. 
once you eventually become, you know, a postdoc, an early career practitioner, if you have the experience from before, it's much easier to transition into. Like, for example, with the adult panel, if you didn't have any prior forensic experience and you apply, they'll never let you on. You can't just get on there and kind of wing it and figure things out. So if you start early enough, I don't think it's that hard to get into it as long as you have good training sites and obviously do very well and get good letters of recommendation. But let's say you are now an early career practitioner and you've never done any forensic work and you want to just get into it. It's definitely more challenging because you kind of have to go get your experience from somewhere. Probably you're going to have to go work somewhere under a more seasoned professional that's willing to kind of mentor you and train you. Otherwise, uh, it'll be very difficult for you to just do it on your own with no experience. You just won't have the competency and training and then eventually that can lead to issues when you're actually doing a deposition or when you're doing a case or when you're testifying at a trial. It's going to become problematic. Thank you for sharing that. It's all, you brought up a good point. Always good to seek out mentorship as early as an undergrad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. So we're going to get into the topic and you're going to have to share this, what OMHD means, because when I was going through practicum and internship year, we called these MDOs, mentally disordered offenders, but now there's a change in the language. So Tell us about that change and what OMHDs are and those kind of evaluations. Sure. So basically, it is an MDO evaluation. I think in 2019 or 2020, they changed the language so it's not as stigmatizing. So that's why they changed the language. But all the rules and the laws and the statute remains unchanged. So sometimes I still call it MDO just because I've kind of years of of knowing about it. I just habitually Mm -hmm. call it that. So if you hear both terms, then it's the same thing. As far as the evaluation goes, basically, These are done at two levels. So they're done at the state correctional facility level by CDCR and also by the Department of State Hospitals, DSH. So these evaluations are basically for inmates that are currently incarcerated that are about to parole. And the goal of the eval is to determine whether they would parole to the community just as a regular parole or they will be civilly committed to a state hospital. So that's what the evaluation essentially in a nutshell is for. Obviously, there's criteria that it, they have to be met in order to be hospitalized in a state hospital. And I'll, we could talk about that in more detail throughout the podcast. But in a nutshell, that's basically what an OMHD evaluation is for. So let me ask a clarifying question. I might have missed this in your talk. These are offenders, inmates that are in prison. They were not in the state hospital previously. Or is that's it correct. Well, you could have both technically. So like if they've never been classified as an OMHD inmate, then obviously they're coming from the state hospital, but they've already been committed to a mm-hmm. state hospital, like the Patton or Tascadero or some of the other state hospitals. Then within the state hospital system, they do annual evaluations anyway to determine at this point with treatment, are they still falling under the civil uh, guidelines for keeping them hospitalized or can they be discharged? So when I was at Patton, I did some MDO evaluations or OMHD evaluations, but those are slightly different because they've already been committed mm-hmm. and now you're doing evaluations to determine whether or not they should still be there, which is different than this one, which is they, they have not been committed. So I think there's a higher standard for them to get committed to begin with. And then once they're in, they still have to meet some of the same criteria, but it's a little bit of a different evaluation. Okay. And so today you're going to, Talk to us a little bit about those the criterions for that. There's six yeah. of them, from my understanding, my review of some of the material you sent me. Yeah, there are six criteria. So there's quite a few of them. It's a little bit overwhelming at first because you think of six criteria, you think there's a lot of stuff to go over, but it actually makes a lot of sense why those criteria are listed. And 
if anyone wants to read about them, if you go in penal code under PC 2962, it outlines all the criteria and pretty much what the statute is. So that way you could clearly see what it is and, and what you have to read and understand when doing these evaluations. I'm going to write that down so I can list that in the show notes for people's reference. If they want to go to that right now, as you're going to go through the criterions, that would be awesome. Okay. So tell us briefly, if you can, like an overview of what, do you want to go just all of them one through six, or you want to break them down individually first, however you prefer. So let me do a quick overview and then we'll kind of, I guess, break down each one. And some of them are are really quick to talk about because they're very straightforward and other ones are more complex. So criterion one is, does the inmate have a severe mental disorder? And we could talk about that, what severe mental disorder is based on statute. Criterion two is, did the inmate use, threaten, or imply the threat of force or violence or great bodily injury in the commission of the crime? Criterion three, was a severe mental disorder a cause or aggravating factor in the crime? Criterion four actually has two prongs. There's 4A and there's 4B. If any one of those are met, then 4A, 4 becomes positive. So prong A of criterion 4 is whether the severe mental disorder is in remission. And then prong B of criterion 4 is if the severe mental disorder cannot be kept in remission without treatment. And that actually is statutorily defined. So we can talk about what that means too. Okay. Criterion 5 is has the inmate been in treatment or that severe mental disorder that you diagnose for at least 90 days over the past year before their release date. So they have to be in treatment for that condition. And we'll talk about that as well. And then the last criterion, and I think this is the, probably the most important one, is do they represent a substantial danger of physical harm to others by reason of a severe mental disorder? Okay. So in order for someone to be committed, all six criterion have to be positive. If any one of them is not positive, then they cannot be committed as an OMHD inmate. Yeah, that's basically the six criteria as an overview. And this is what you do for your day job. You do these evaluations all day, every day. That's correct. So I do at least wow. on average about anywhere from 18 to 20 a month of these kinds of evaluations. Okay, because you're reading these criterions and I'm like, this sounds like it's a very comprehensive evaluation. A lot of parts to it, probably a lot of data. Yeah, yes and no. It depends on the inmate. It depends on the crime. It depends on the severe mental illness. It can get very, very complicated. It might seem a little bit overwhelming when we go through this. And it, it kind of is, honestly. When I was first starting out doing this, I felt very overwhelmed. But as, as you start doing it, it starts to make more sense. And you realize it's kind of like a template that you follow. Okay. And you start to develop like a knack for it where you, you understand what's going on and what's going to be positive just by looking at the records. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you always interview the inmate as well. But it's. It's not as bad as it sounds, is what I'm trying to say. No, it does. It just it's, it sounds very interesting. It just sounds like a very comprehensive evaluation. But this is, I'm going to point out to the listeners again, you are a psychologist working at a state hospital. So this is one of the possible job options as a forensic psychologist at a state hospital. This is what you can do. Yeah, I'm in the prison system, but the state hospital also does this. Oh, too. I'm so sorry. You're in the prison system. Yeah. Yes, I forgot. You used to no be worries. at the state. Uh, I used to be at the state <laughs> hospital. But the, so basically, um, evaluators from both do an evaluation, though. So if you want, I can kind of go through and, and walk you through how this process even starts and how a referral is even generated. 
Yes. Should we do the criteria first or should we go through the eval process first? What would make more sense? Let me kind of explain how the referral even starts. Yeah. And then we'll go through the eval because that's generally how it comes to me. So basically, before we're assigned the case, essentially a correctional counselor gets a notification through the system that the state has that an inmate is about to parole. So when they know an inmate's about the parole, they'll go ahead and look through their file and see what kind of crime they committed and if they're in mental health treatment. So criterion two, which is pretty much did they commit a crime that involved force, threats, or violence, or great bodily injury, that one is determined by the correctional officer that's reviewing the case. So they're basically like an analyst or like an administrative correctional officer that goes through and looks at these. So under the 2962 PC, there's crimes that are statutorily defined that are included in this, but other crimes where maybe they were convicted of, for example, I've seen this happen a couple of times, like a burglary. A burglary isn't inherently a violent crime. It's a property crime. But if someone was home while they committed the burglary, there's an implied threat. So then that will be qualified as a qualifying offense or they'll be listed as a qualifying offense. So the correctional officer does that part. So I'm not involved with the classification of whether someone committed a violent crime. It comes to us and says, hey, a peace officer already reviewed this and this has been classified. The second thing that the analysts look at is, has the person been in mental health treatment for at least 90 days or will they be in treatment for 90 days by the time they're released? So sometimes you get people that they're like 120 days from being released and they've done only 60 days of treatment. But if they stay in the program, they'll have 90 by the time they're released. So an analyst, again, looks at that. So if those two things are met where they committed a qualifying crime and then they also they have been in treatment for 90 days or will be in treatment for 90 days by the time they're released, then that referral gets generated to us as an OMHD evaluator to start the process. So if they didn't commit a qualifying crime or if they have not been in the mental health system or if they're not going to have it for 90 days, then basically the case gets screened out. At that point, there's no reason to do an evaluation because you already know that this first basic criterion is not going to be positive. Makes sense. Makes sense. So at the end of the day, it has to be a violent crime. Essentially, yeah. Violence or threats, yeah. All of them involve some sort of violence or threats or great bodily injury. You know, common crimes that I see happen or come up are domestic violence, robberies, assaults with deadly weapon, obviously anything that involves like a murder or attempted murder gets classified. Any sex crimes that also get classified as violent offenses. So there's a whole list of them that the peace officer will review and determine whether or not the person qualifies. Now, this may be a dumb question, but it kind of seems like if a person's in prison... It would be for a violent crime. Who, who would not qualify? What Can you just give me one example? I'm trying to think in my head to make this make sense. Who would not qualify? Sure. Uh, drug trafficking, for example, if they have like a large drug trafficking case, if okay. maybe they committed just a property crime, like a burglary on an empty building where there's nobody inside of it, that might not qualify. But okay. So those are like common examples of things that might come up. I honestly don't see the non-qualifying crimes because by the time they come to me, they all have qualifying crimes. So I'm pretty sure there's yeah. other ones that I can't think of off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. Like I, 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 I have one for you. Uh, identity theft. So someone that was forgery oh, okay. or fraud, things mm-hmm. like that. So those are some examples. Perfect. Okay, so that was, we did criteria one, two. Well, we did two actually. Yeah, one and two. No, we haven't done one yet. <laughs> We haven't done one. Oh, we did two. Jeez, I thought we were yeah. going in order. Okay, so that's two. What so, is one? How come we skip so around? Is there a method to that so madness? Yeah, so I started with two because that's how the referral comes to us. They have to be gotcha. positive on two, and then they come to us. So the other ones are basically, is there a severe mental illness? So 
it's tricky because the statute doesn't say what a severe mental illness is. There's no list of qualifying, but there are lists of unqualifying. So like off the top of my head, there are certain crimes that just, or sorry, certain disorders. mental illnesses or disorders that don't qualify. So like an adjustment disorder by statute does not qualify. Personality disorders, borderline personality, antisocial personality, they don't qualify. Developmental disabilities, they don't qualify. Intellectual disabilities don't qualify. Any addiction or substance abuse doesn't qualify. So those ones by statute are defined as not qualifying. As far as what qualifies as severe mental illness, it doesn't really say, but it does give some criteria. And if you look under PC 2962, it does give a definition of it. So just as like a quick overview, it's basically a severe mental disorder is an illness or a condition that substantially impairs the person's thought, perception of reality, emotional process, or judgment, or which grossly impairs behavior, or that demonstrates the evidence of acute brain syndrome for which prompt remission in the absence of treatment is unlikely. That's obviously the mouth. That's a mouthful. That's a lot of stuff. So, if you think about it, technically any condition could be considered a severe mental disorder depending on the circumstance. But some obviously are going to meet it no matter what, like schizophrenia, schizophrenic yeah, bipolar disorder, disorder, bipolar disorder, PTSD. Maybe depending, you know, PTSD kind of occurs on a range. Some people just have like very minor trauma-related symptoms. Other people have a lot of mood dysregulation and uh, irritability and anger that could definitely be a severe mental disorder. I think major depression kind of varies depending on the severity of the symptoms, if they're psychotic features or not. Mm-hmm. So there's some that are kind of like up in the air, but then there's other ones where, you know, like schizophrenia, schizoaffective, bipolar, those ones are always going to, in my opinion, be severe mental disorders just by the very nature of the condition. Right, right. Those are the things that typically I see when it comes to severe mental disorders. One thing I want to add though, there's case law on this. I don't remember the case off the top of my head, but pedophilia is considered a severe mental disorder. Yes. That's the only one um, where it basically says like that one by statute, it says it, it is a, a severe mental disorder or it can be a severe mental disorder. Mm-hmm. So most of the time, I would say probably nine times out of 10 for cases that I do where it's a severe mental disorder, it's almost always schizophrenia or a variation of one of the psychotic spectrum conditions or bipolar disorder. Those are the most common ones that I see. Right. It's nice that it lists out things that aren't qualifying and then gives you at least a little definition that gives you some kind of parameters, I guess, to work in if you're approaching this evaluation as a new person. Of course, yeah. I'm sure you're going to get training, but it's yeah. nice that there's some structure put in place. Well, I mean, think about it. If someone is violent, but it's because they, they're antisocial, they have ASPD traits, or they're full-blown antisocial personality disorder or borderline personality disorder, those are just personality disorders. They're not a severe mental illness as defined by the statute. So someone could be violent for other reasons and they wouldn't necessarily meet criteria one. Yeah. So I think it's important to make that distinction and to really figure out, is this actually a severe mental illness? Sometimes what happens too is you don't really have a set diagnosis because you have people with co-occurring substance use and you're not really clear. So sometimes I use the unspecified categories, but you kind of have to use your clinical judgment there to figure out, you know, what can be explaining what's going on with this person. Other times I've had conditions or instances where this person was psychotic, but there's clear evidence of substance use. They're being caught with drugs. They have positive drug tests. They're telling you they're using drugs. So with those, you're able to see like, hey, this is all substance induced. They, they're not going to meet criteria one because it's due to a, an intoxicating substance. Mm-hmm. So you get this information through obvious interviews with the inmate and then a very thorough record review, which in the prison system, if they're in the mental health 
delivery system, they, they have a lot of records. So you kind of go through that and you're able to figure out, do they meet criteria one or not? Right. Have you ever evaluated someone that's had like two, three, four diagnoses on their records? All the time. A lot of times in the prison system, especially if they're bouncing around, they get a lot of diagnoses in their mental health records. So you're kind of the last step in this and you have to figure out what's really going on. I've seen people that have schizoaffective, schizophrenia, bipolar one, bipolar two, PTSD, like which one of these is it? So mm -hmm. in going through the records, you have to be, obviously you have to know the criteria for the conditions very well, but you also have to rely on your interviewing skills to kind of figure out what's going on. An example I see come up often is people with PTSD get misdiagnosed as bipolar disorder because they have mood dysregulation issues. Right. So, you know, you got to figure out how long does the mood dysregulation go on for? Is it in response to something? Is it only in certain situations? So most of the time I'm able to kind of, I guess, narrow it down to one, but I've had cases where I just had a recent one where the person had pedophilia or pedophilic disorder and PTSD. So you, technically you have at this point two severe mental illnesses because his PTSD was pretty bad. So then you have to speak to both in your evaluation. So it gets a little bit, it could get very tricky and complex if, if the person has multiple mental health conditions. Yeah, I could see that. That makes me think of the panel evaluations that I do when getting all kinds of records for people that are trying to get diversion or even mitigation reports, you see all these diagnoses and it's like, Oh my gosh, like when you're appointed as the 730 expert, you have to kind of come in there and use your good clinical interviewing skills and, you know, figure out what is really going on. Like peel back the onion, look at the etiology, give you know the best yeah. possible diagnosis you can. Cause it's not going to be all five. Yeah. And sometimes with some conditions like, you know, someone just writes a note and says a condition mm -hmm. They'll meet with one the person one time and the person says, I hear voices and they write schizophrenia. Well, there's more to it. Like it's not just hearing voices. Is it their voices or their internal thoughts and their own internal dialogue? That's often. You know, yeah, that's often. Yeah, it happens often. Yeah. It happens often all the time. So it, it could get really complex and tricky. So I think that's why it's really important to have a good understanding of what the different conditions are and how they manifest. Otherwise, from the get-go, if you are incorrect with your diagnosis from criterion one, the rest of your report is kind of going to be off. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the yeah, nice, exactly. nicest way of putting it. Yeah. So read your DSM. I know the pages in grad school that we didn't read because we we're like, oh, it's boring. We just want to read the criteria. Go back and read the other pages. There's great etiology. There's great history studies in there. And then there's another book. I'll link it. It's here in my library. What's it called? I think it's something like uh, the psychopathology of mental disorders or something, but it talks all about how the disorders manifest themselves and how long they last. And it just goes really in depth. Great book to know. So when I find that later, I will also link that in show notes, but moving on. Okay. So now we did one. So, so basically, okay. yeah. So basically early on, right away, you know, there's no severe mental disorder, the evaluation, the rest of it's easy. If number one is zero, which means it's not positive. That means that three, four, five, and six can't be positive either because you have to have a severe mental disorder. So your, your eval ends up being pretty short if they don't have a severe mental disorder. But assuming that they do, then you have to go and figure out what the rest of them might be. So let's say one is positive, the person has schizophrenia, and two is positive because obviously the correctional counselor already screened the case. Then you move on to three, which is basically, was a severe mental disorder one of the causes or an aggravating factor in the commission of the crime? If you go back to the mental health diversion evaluations that we do, this is very similar to that. You basically want to know, did their mental illness impact the crime? Mm -hmm. So... In doing that, we review, obviously, the police report, the probation report. Those are usually the two best sources of information. And then we do an interview with the inmate to figure out what happened. So things that I kind of look for in the police report are, 
odd or strange behaviors, mood dysregulation, statements that they're making, you know, someone with schizophrenic or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, were they presenting with mood lability? Were they delusional? Were they presenting with disorganized thoughts, strange behaviors? Were they mumbling to themselves, talking to themselves? Those are the kinds of things that I look for in the police report. And sometimes you see that information, sometimes you don't. And, you know, if you don't have it, you don't have it. And then I interviewed an inmate and I asked him, what happened that day? You get a variety of answers. Some will just lie to you. Even though there's 10 witnesses that saw what happened, they'll just say, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. There's other ones that will just minimize the presence of their mental illness. There's other ones that will be open and honest and tell you what happened. And then there's other ones where you find out that everything that happened was due to drugs. Mm-hmm. So remember, if it's due to drugs or alcohol, then it can't, you know, it's not their severe mental illness causing them to behave this way. So that's an important consideration to have. And then sometimes you have cases where it's both. The person has a pre-existing history of schizophrenia, mm-hmm. bipolar disorder, and they happen to be high that day. So you kind of have to use your clinical judgment again and, and make a pine on that with the best you know, information that you have with a reasonable degree of medical certainty. So that's basically what I would look for under Criterion 3. That one sounds like it would take a bit of time to get the data and think through Sounds like you would spend some time there. And, and it's kind of like the nexus of psychology and law. It's it's really the hallmark of forensic evaluations, like in, like you mentioned in diversion and also similar in insanity. And Yeah, exactly. And, you know, sometimes I've had cases where it's just strictly drugs or sometimes it's just strictly antisocial personality traits. You know, things I look for are, you know, is there goal-directed behavior? Did this person plan to go to a liquor store with five friends and rob it? And that's, you know, goal-directed behavior. That's not what you expect to see with someone with, psychosis or mania, they tend to be more impulsive and just poorly thought out behaviors. So, you know, you kind of have to go through the police report and also the type of crime and what they did and and kind of figure out, you know, is this, does this fall within the realm of what someone with a severe mental illness would do? Or maybe was this more coordinated and planned as part of someone that's more criminally sophisticated? So I think some experience with understanding different crimes and what it requires to commit certain crimes uh, is really helpful in this case too. Definitely. So that would be criteria three, and then we're on four. Yeah, four is a little bit of a complicated one because there's two prongs. So prong one is, is the inmate in a state of remission? So it doesn't define what remission is by statute. So you kind of have to use your clinical judgment there. Some of the evaluators use six months as a guideline. Some evaluators use one year as a guideline. So you kind of have to look and see like, you know, in the, in the past six months to one year, how have their symptoms have been in the prison system? Sometimes you'll have inmates that are just overtly psychotic and manic because they're not doing any treatment. Other times you'll have people that get treatment and maybe improve and they're not overtly psychotic, but they're still presenting with delusions that persist. But there's no like disorganized thoughts, no odd or strange behaviors, no flat affect, no negative signs. So if they're continuing to present with signs that 4A would be positive. Certain conditions like bipolar disorder in the DSM actually define what remission is. I think for bipolar disorder, that means two months. For schizophrenia is one year. So sometimes I'll look at the criteria if they have bipolar disorder and they haven't had any symptoms in you know, two, three months, then technically part of DSM, they're in remission. So then I opine on 4A that they're in remission too, because the DSM says they're in remission. Right. So, And it doesn't define by statute what it is. So that information will come from a combination of places. So one will be obviously the interviews with the inmate and what they're reporting. Sometimes they minimize things that are not honest. That's why the record review is handy because you're able to see what what the clinicians and what the psychiatrist and what the treatment team has observed over the past six months to one year. 
always use multiple sources of information. Yeah, especially for forensic evaluations. Mm -hmm. And some of these inmates that have been in the prison system for a little bit, they know what the OMHD process is. So they have an incentive to minimize. This is unusual because this is a forensic setting where they want to minimize symptomology because they don't want to get committed to a state hospital. Whereas if they report it, then it kind of doesn't work in their favor. So you actually, in the prison system, you tend to have people that malinger and then within the OMHD evaluations, they tend to minimize because mm -hmm. they don't want to get incarcerated or sorry, they don't want to get civilly committed in the state hospital. Right. I had a question and now it just went out of my mind. It was about what you mentioned, but if it comes back to me, I'll ask you. But that was the criteria for... Yeah. So that was 4A. And then right. 4B. Oh, that's, can I ask you, I'm going to forget. So do you want, for them to qualify, do you want them to be positive on 4A or not to be positive? Could you want the symptoms to be in remission or not? So obviously you want the symptoms to be in remission because you don't want someone to be struggling and, and <laughs> dealing with the mental illness. But as far as OMHD goes, if they're not in remission, they're still presenting it with symptoms under 4A, they will be positive. So remember, for Criterion 4, if 4A or 4B is positive, the whole thing ends up being positive. Okay. So only one of them has to be positive. Okay. 4B is actually defined by statute. So basically, 4B says, and I have notes in front of me, 4B asks you, can they, cannot be, if they cannot be kept in remission without treatment. That's what you're looking at for 4B. So it's defined in 2962 PC. So basically... The mental illness cannot be kept in remission without treatment if the severe mental disorder has been in remission, but he or she in the past year has been physically violent, except in self-defense, self-defense is fine, made serious threats of substantial harm upon the person of another, intentionally caused property damage, or if they have not followed a treatment plan. So that one is actually statutorily defined. So someone technically could be in remission but then because they maybe got into a fight two months before you saw them, and that's within the one-year window, then 4B is positive, and then all of 4 becomes positive. So you have to be very careful about that because any one of those things can make 4B positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like not following the treatment plan, right? That The treatment at the hospital or the prison, not going to yeah. the groups, not taking meds, cheeking meds, selling meds, anything. Yeah, the most common things I usually see are either violence where they've been assaultive, sometimes threats, and then not following a treatment plan is pretty common in the individuals that are very psychotic and they have to get on involuntary medications and stuff. Usually for them to get on involuntary medications, they have to have not been following a treatment plan. They have to have danger to others, danger to self, or grave disability to get involuntary medication order approved by the court. So it gets a little bit tricky because you have to carefully look at each of those things. And it can be any at any time during the past year. So that's why reviewing the records over the past year is really important because you'll interview them and they'll say everything's fine. And then you go look through the records and you're like, well, here's like a three-month window where they stopped taking meds and then now they're taking meds again. Now they stopped again or they don't take meds at all. So you have to look at those records very carefully to figure out what's been going on in their treatment over the past year. Makes sense. So what's our next criteria? Next one's five. So they have to have been in treatment for the severe mental disorder that you diagnose in the past year for at least 90 days or more within the past year prior to their release. Or if it hasn't been 90 days quite yet, but it's going to reach 90 by the time they're paroled, then that would count as well. So this gets tricky because you want to be certain that what you're diagnosing, they've been in treatment for. So some, most of the time it does work out that way, but sometimes it doesn't. So like, for example... You might meet with someone and 
you might diagnose them with PTSD, but they've been in treatment for bipolar disorder. So that becomes problematic. Obviously, if there's some notes in their records that show both, then you're fine. But you want to be careful what you diagnose for, because if you're diagnosing a trauma-based condition, but then they have a thought disorder and mood disorder, then the two doesn't line up. And mm -hmm. by definition, five would not be positive. But for the most part, as long as they have a severe mental disorder, like 99% of the time, five ends up being positive because they usually have been getting treatment for it. The only exception, and this is like a tricky one, is pedophilia. There's only one, as far as I know, there's only one prison in the CDCR that treats pedophilia. So unless they're coming from that prison, they could be positive on everything else, including violence risk, but they won't be positive on five and they will not be civilly committed. They, so, did you say they will or they won't? They will not be civilly committed because they, I remember all, all six have to be positive. So I just had a case where the person has pedophilia. They're positive on one, two, three, four, and six, but because they never got treatment for it, then by definition, it's not positive. That seems, um, it seems a little wonky not to put someone, I mean, I understand why the funding issues and, and the location, issue, but it, it seems like there should be maybe a caveat in the statute for, for that disorder. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, and the tricky part is too, a lot of the clinicians, when they look at these inmates with sex offenses, especially ones involving children, they don't really go in depth into the criteria for pedophilia. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it doesn't happen that often. In the past you know, year that I've been working as an OMHD evaluator, I think I just had my first case where someone had legitimate pedophilia versus other ones that might involve sex offenses, but it might be like a one-time thing with a child versus pedophilia requires, I think the criteria is six months or three months. I have to forget off the top of my head, but it has to happen for a certain period of time. It has to be kind of repeated. It has to be attraction to children. And so without evidence of that and without querying for that, really, I don't expect the clinician on the yard to diagnose somebody with that. Right. They're kind of more focused on treating like depression, anxiety, PTSD, mood disorders, thought disorders, things like that. Yeah, I get it. So that would be five. And then our last one, six. Yeah, six is the probably, I think, the most important one because you're really speaking to whether or not they pose a substantial danger of physical harm to others due to their mental health disorder. So remember, it has to be due to the mental health disorder. Sometimes mm -hmm. you have people that are just violent and assaulting people, but it's because they're just, they have ASPD or they have borderline personality disorder or they're just very bad people. So that will not make six positive. So it has to be due to their severe mental health disorder. We don't really do like formal violence risk assessments. Like, you know, for the diversion cases, we use like the HCR, right? Um, yeah. On this one, they don't really want us using that. But I feel like you kind of do because you're speaking to a lot of the same factors. So things that you look at are history of violence in CDCR, history of violence in the community, insight and awareness into the mental health condition, insight and awareness into the commission of the crime, if there's any remorse, how compliant have they been in treatment? How is their mental health condition? Is it remission? Is it kind of going towards remission? How they've been doing in mental health treatment, as far as their mental health treatment goes in CDCR? Did their crime get impacted by the mental health condition? That's kind of important. And have they presented with those ongoing symptoms in the prison system? What's their parole plan? Where are they going to go? Who are they going to stay with? What are they going to do for work? Are they going to continue with treatment? So some of the stuff obviously you could get from the records, but I think the most important part here, and this is the question that I usually ask people are, what do you plan on doing when you get out of prison? Like, what are your parole plans? And I like asking that in an open-ended way and not really asking specific things because they'll just say yes to it. Right. So and a, a common example that you might see are people that, or inmates that, they have been doing fine in CDCR, but they're only doing fine because they have an involuntary medication order. They're in the highest level of care. They have people constantly monitoring them. 
And maybe any time where the level of care has been lowered or they haven't taken their meds, they've become violent. Yeah, it's a very structured setting. Exactly. It's a very structured setting. So what's going to happen when they go in the community? How are they going to be? What are their parole plans? Sometimes I've had people tell me straight up that I'm not going to take my meds. I'm going to start using drugs again. And I plan on just staying with a friend. So you know, is that a viable parole plan? Is that going to help mitigate risk for him? What's going to happen when the structure is removed for this inmate in the community and they're just kind of free to do what they want? And other times I'll interview people and they have good insight. They understand what their mental illness is. They know what medications help for them. They have a parole plan. They know who they're going to stay with. They're going to get resources from here. So you kind of look at those different factors and you're able to figure out what's going to elevate the risk of violence for this person in the community once these structured supports are taken away. And based off that, you can figure out if six is positive or not. How come they don't want you to use a structured professional judgment tool like the HCR-20? I mean, if you're trained in it, it's kind of like, like you said, it's already going to be in the back of your mind of how you go through and clinically judge risk, future potential future violence risk in general. You know, I've always thought about that too, because if you look at the criteria that I went over, a lot of it's actually covered in the HCR anyway. Right. Almost right. all of it. Historical factors, so, clinical factors, release exactly. plan stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Protective factors. It's all really covered in there. So I think I was reviewing a PowerPoint slide this morning before our talk. And I think the re- rationale is that these are defined by like statute and it doesn't link up one-on-one with the HCR. So out of, they just say, don't use it. But in reality, you essentially are using the HCR risk factors and the HCR criteria. And, and the list that we go through when I was looking at, it, I'm like, this is basically what's in the HCR for the most part. So I mean, you're not using it, but you kind of are. So I don't know how you would say that, but we don't reference the, like that we that right. we use the HCR in our reports because they don't really want us to do that, which is fine. I mean, you're still able to hit all those different risk factors and figure out what's going on. Okay. So that is one through six. That's one through six. Yeah. You made it sound simple there. It sounds simple. But they are complex. Look, the tr- it can be complicated. The, the trickiest cases are the ones where if anyone's ever worked in a prison system, they know that there's a lot of personality disorders and just personality traits in people. So sometimes you have people that are violent and acting out and all over the place emotionally and behaviorally, but it has nothing to do with the mental illness. And it's all just personality driven. I think those are the hardest cases because there's no real way to kind of help those people in the prison system. So they end up in like the crisis beds and the state hospitals. And I've had a bunch of cases where someone just kept bouncing around really high levels of care because of those behavioral problems. And it's your job to figure out what's going on because you don't want to, my thought process is I don't want to diagnose somebody with severe mental disorder when they don't really have it. And then for whatever reason, they end up in a state hospital with people that actually do have a severe mental disorder. Now you have someone with ASPD in this treatment environment that's going to make life miserable and difficult for everybody, which is, I say that because when I was working on MDO unit at DSH, we would sometimes get people that had those personality traits and it was all personality driven And it becomes very clear once they get to DSH because now they want to get out. So there's no mental illness going on. It's just behaviors and acting out and acting out. And it's it's much harder to figure out what's going on with someone at that point because they already got committed. So I think it's really important to make sure that you don't incorrectly diagnose someone and having them be an MDO or MHD inmate when that's really just more personality driven and maybe substance driven, depending on what's going on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to ask you as our time's coming to an end, but I want you to, if you can, just tell us how you approach these evaluations. Like, it doesn't sound like there's any type of testing involved. So what does the actual evaluation involve besides the interview with the inmate and the record review? 
that's basically it. There's no testing involved in this. So essentially, we would review the records before we meet with the inmate. And I summarize it before I, I meet with them. So that way, I could ask about current issues that are going on, and obviously the parole plans and all that. But also, I go back, and there, if there's conflicting information in the records, I try to rectify and figure out what's going on. And sometimes they're honest about it. Sometimes they just avoid the question. Sometimes they just won't answer it at all. It depends on the person and kind of what's going on. That sounds relatively simple, that approach. But I imagine you spend hours reviewing records sometimes. Yeah, it depends. Sometimes you have inmates that were in the prison system for 10 years. You kind of have to be, I guess, efficient with how you review records and kind of learn to prioritize things. So usually I'll look at earlier records to establish a diagnosis and an early treatment. And they kind of just go year by year. And I spend a lot more time on the more recent records because that's more relevant for like the criterion mm-hmm. and stuff about their recent presentation. And even when you do a risk assessment, it's really about, you, know, you have historical factors, but the recent ones really are probably more important than the historical ones, especially if it was like 10 years, some of the things in the past. So that's usually how I'll approach it. Can this job be done by someone that doesn't work for the prison system or the, yeah? yeah? How do they obtain that kind of position? So there's two ways. So remember, there's always two evaluations completed. So if I do an evaluation on an inmate and there's no severe mental disorder, then nobody from DSH will come and speak to them. But if there is, a second opinion, a second evaluation has to be done. And both evaluations have to be positive in order for someone to get committed as an OMHD inmate. Sometimes we have disagreements. If there's a disagreement, then the state will appoint two independent evaluators to come okay. and evaluate. And then those two independent evaluators are part of a panel, just like how there's a core panel for a lot of these evaluations. If you go to the BPH website, you could join the MDO panel for your, for your region. And basically, they just rotate through and they assign cases as disagreements come up. So then your two, the two independent evaluators will do it. So now there's four reports that go to the, the chief psychologist or sorry, chief psychiatrist. And then he will sign off or not sign off depending on the information that he sees and then it goes to bph for final approval and then if they're committed then they're committed and they made obviously at that point has their own rights they could sit there and peel it and fight it and that's an entirely separate process mm-hmm. but that's how people can do these evaluations outside of the state system wonderful look at you providing great resources for us today i'm going to look for that and i'll link it again in the show notes for you guys last thing um what, what do you think is the most important takeaway for doing one of these kinds of evaluations, whether they're going to do it going and working for the prison system or maybe trying to get on that panel? What's like one thing you want to leave with our listeners? I think to do these types of evaluations, you have to, one, have a really good understanding of the different mental health conditions and how they manifest and present. And you have to have a really good understanding of how inmates are in a prison culture to understand where they're coming from and how they might present in prison and to figure out, is this a severe mental illness or this is more personality traits? I think that's a common issue that I see with some people, some of the reports that I review when I review older reports or when I review records and stuff, there's some clinicians that you could tell they're not very well versed in how prison culture works. And they assume everything is a mental health condition. Like when inmates come and tell you, I hear voices and they automatically assume schizophrenia, but they don't think about secondary gain and what they're trying to gain by moving from one yard or another if they have safety issues. So I think you have to understand prison culture and how prisons operate in order to kind of look at other things that could be impacting this person's behavior other than a mental illness. The second thing is really attention to detail. There's a lot of, obviously, just six criteria you have to go through. There's a lot of nuances and details. So you have to be very aware of these nuances and be good at sifting through information and condensing information. Because if you get an inmate that has 10 years worth of records, there's no way you can sit there and reasonably condense that all that information, you have to kind of know how to go through what's relevant and not. 
And lastly, you have to be good at report writing. I mean, your report basically is everything that you have to show for this. So report writing is really, really important and being able to analyze and synthesize information in a very cohesive and articulate way so that a BPH commissioner or a judge could eventually review it. Right. And there's trainings for all of these areas that you mentioned. So I always, in the show notes, link the organizations that put on really great trainings like the American Academy of Forensic Psychology, APLS conferences coming up. And speaking of which, the Forensic Mental Health Association of California conference is coming up where I am presenting. So I am a little biased. Go check that out. If you guys want to register, it's April 13th through April 15th. And this year it's in San Diego. So thank you so much for being on the show again. And maybe we'll have you back for some other great topic in the future. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. The Forensic Psychologist Podcast is a project of Vienna Psychological Group. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review and giving a five-star rating. It helps get the show out there to students and others interested in forensic psychology. You can find the references and resources mentioned in the episodes below in the show notes. And make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at Dr. Nicole Vienna for more information on upcoming episodes and all things forensic psychology. 